It's green. And it's a green passport because it is not a U.S. passport. It is a Korean passport. And it's a Korean passport because I have a green card and I don't have my U.S. citizenship just yet. And I get to apply for U.S. citizenship in December of this year. And Lord willing, I'll be able to receive it December of next year. And when I receive, well, Lord willing, if, if I receive, if and when I receive my U.S. citizenship, it's going to be 25 years in the making. And my family came here in 1998, uh, you know, 23, 24 years ago. So when I receive my citizenship, I get to say, this is mine. It's going to be special to me. And it's going to have a personal meaning. But when I say my Korean citizenship, I apologize to all the Koreans here, <laughs> it doesn't have the same personal meaning anymore because it's been 23 years. I haven't been back. I haven't been able to go back. Uh, a lot of my connections are gone. So my Korean citizenship is probably something I neglect, something I don't have a personal connection with anymore. But man, I'm, I'm looking forward to next year when I get to say, my U.S. citizenship, this is mine. There is a personal connection. Uh, I, it's been my goal for so many years. And there's been a lot of hardship in those 25 years for my family. My parents brought me here as, on a tourist visa. We overstayed, became illegals. And it took a long time, by God's grace, to become legalized. So there's a lot of hardship. And there's a lot of personal identity that's wrapped up when I say my citizenship. And the reason I mention this today is because in our passage, Paul uses the phrase, my gospel. And that's not a phrase he uses very often. He uses it two other times in Romans and says, my gospel. And in the context here, he's saying my gospel as in, hey, my gospel is the true gospel. It is not the false gospel. But I think it's a little bit more than that. I think there is a personal connection here where Paul is saying, this is mine. Okay. This is a personal to me. This is something that I've devoted my life to. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I get to call it mine. And I think the reason why he was able to say this is my gospel was because it was his identity, it was his calling, and it was his hardship. Can I have a... Um, so he is able to say, my identity, my calling, and my hardship. How can we say that? How can we say my gospel? And I think that's a challenge for us. Is the gospel something we can claim as our own? Can I say, this is my gospel? And how do we say that? Because I think we need those three things to say, identity, calling, and gospel. And I think we can say something is my identity when it describes who we are. And I think identity is something we talk about all the time in our culture. It's something that defines us. How do you define identity? There's a famous meme here that we talk about. CrossFit. Okay. So the first rule of CrossFit is to talk about CrossFit. Second rule of CrossFit is to always talk about CrossFit. The reason why this is funny is because identity is something we're obsessed with, right? You know when someone is obsessed with something, when it identifies who they are, because they talk about it all the time. They won't stop talking about it. And for clarification, I don't do CrossFit. <laughs> but when something is your identity, it's something that wraps around who you are. It defines who you are. And I think for Paul, that's how the gospel was. Gospel was something that he was obsessed with. It defined his life, and his identity was in the gospel. So let's go ahead and read our passage today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment, 
as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. The statement is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So is the gospel part of our DNA? Is it our identity? And is it part of our character, part of who we are? Can we say this is personally mine? You know, identity is a powerful thing. There's a book called Atomic Habits. I didn't read it, but Luke Thomas said, so you can ask him all about it. <laughs> but there's a part in the book where it says, when you start identifying yourself as a runner, all of a sudden you start changing your habits. You start running more. I know that was true for me. I'm not exactly the greatest runner out there, but in college, I all of a sudden really got into running and thought of myself as a runner. And I was able to actually run a marathon. And people were like, man, you don't have a runner's body. Like, how'd you, how'd you run that? <laughs> because you start identifying yourself, and all of a sudden your actions change, and your values change. And I think that's the same thing with us. If you identify with the gospel, it's going to change your life. It's going to change your values. It's going to change your actions. It's going to change how you look at life. So do I identify myself with the gospel? You know, I think for me, growing up, I had a big identity crisis. Coming here when I was 11 from Korea, it was always a kind of a crisis of my Korean, or my American, and I didn't really fit into either culture. I didn't speak the language very well. I moved around a lot. I didn't have a lot of friends. And, you know, when I went to my Korean friends, I wasn't Korean enough because I didn't listen to K-pop. <laughs> Someone asked me, like, a couple weeks ago if I listened to K-pop. I'm like, I don't listen to K-pop ever, like, in my life. My niece listens to more BTS than I do. And she's two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But then if I go to my American friends, like, I wasn't popular with American kids either because they were listening to, like, Eminem and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't know what these guys are. Like, I, can't, I don't understand the words that are coming out of these songs. And I wasn't fitting into any culture. And I felt like I don't fit in and I don't belong anywhere. And when I became a Christian, eighth grade, summer, going into high school, I didn't have to worry about that anymore. It didn't matter if I was Korean or if I was American because I am a child of God. I'm a Christian and that's my identity. It doesn't matter if I don't have citizenship in this country. My citizenship is in heaven. So is our identity in Christ? And does it define us? So often we let the world define who we are. We let other people and we let the world and the culture around us define who we are. We need to let the gospel define our value and our worth. It's in Christ that we're forgiven, that we're a child of God. And that's our worth and our value. And that's our identity. So who am I according to the gospel? And do I view myself through the lens of the gospel? Again, for Paul, it was personal. It was about where he belongs, his ownership. He owned the gospel as his own. I remember when I was teaching Sunday school, there was a kid named Peter who came to class, and he was so happy talking about how his dad gave him a knife. And I was like, aren't you a little young for a knife? He's like 10. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I trust you with a knife. But he said, no, 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 like my dad taught me how to use a knife properly, he taught me how all the safety. He trusted me with it. And he trusted me more than my older sister. He won't give her a knife, but he'll give me a knife. And he just had this pride and joy in his face. And I think that's what it means to be entrusted with something, right? God is entrusting us with the gospel. It's this precious thing that God has given us. And our Heavenly Father says, I trust you to take care of this. This is yours to guard. This is yours. 
So does the gospel define you and permeate every aspect of your life? Does it characterize who you are? You know, there are some believers here at the chapel, when every time I talk to them, I just want to love the Lord more because they're so humble and gracious, not in the facetious way, but they're genuinely humble. And their humility and their grace and their love for the Lord is contagious. You know, just, just hearing them talk makes me want to love the Lord more. And I was like, I wish I could permeate every aspect of my life with the gospel the way he does or the way she does. And the way they let gospel characterize their life, when the way they interact with people, the way they handle conflict, just the way they handle life is full of the gospel. And I think that's how we have to do it. I think we have to let the gospel characterize. It can't just be something that is in our content. This gospel is not something we just memorize in our head. It needs to be a character, part of our everyday life. How do we do that? How do we let the gospel become everyday part of our life, part of our character? I think we have to cling to the gospel. Uh, there's a picture of my niece here. She's two, and she's like the cutest thing. And she can't talk yet. Okay, so I got her this little llama from Peru. And I come back from Peru, I walk through the door, and she sees a llama, and she's like, mine! <laughs> and she doesn't even talk, and she just like runs away with it. And I'm like, where's my hug? <laughs> she doesn't even say hi to me, but she says, this is mine. And she starts eating with it, she's playing with it, she's sleeping with it for like maybe a week. Um, but for that week, that llama was hers, and no one's going to take it away from her. She just clung to that thing for dear life. And I think that's what we have to do with the gospel. I think we have to grab onto the gospel and say, this is mine. Yeah, this belongs to me. This is my gospel. The second reason why Paul was able to say my gospel was because it was his calling. Paul was able to say, the gospel is my calling. Let's think about who Paul is. Okay? Paul was a lawyer. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, tribe of Benjamin. He was a Roman citizen. I mean, this guy was on top of his game. To be a Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, you're talking about a lawyer at the top of his game in his culture. He was an elite, upper-class person. A modern-day version of Paul would be like this Harvard Law graduate lawyer in East Coast. You know, Ivy League, elite, upper-class, probably a corporate lawyer making half a million to a million a year, got a penthouse in New York, maybe on the shortlist for attorney general of the New York State. I mean, this guy's going places. He's got it made. He's on top of his game. Then he gets saved, quits his job, flies to the Philippines, and starts working night shift at a Nike factory making sneakers <laughs> just to support himself so that he can be a missionary in the Philippines. Can you imagine that? That's crazy, but that's what he did. That's exactly what Paul did. Paul was top of his game, elite, upper class, wealthy, probably had all those things, educated. And he let it go to be a tent maker so he can support a church, so he can be a missionary. Why would you do that? Why was Paul okay with that? Because he didn't care if it was tent making. He didn't care what he was doing. He only cared about his calling. And his calling was a gospel. And it didn't matter what he had to give up, that no matter what his day job was, it was all about the gospel. In another word, for Paul, gospel was his main hustle. It wasn't a side hustle. You know, I'm a nurse and I have a lot of coworkers with a lot of side hustles. They have a lot of uh, side gig. Some of them have a business. Some of them have like an Instagram page or Etsy shop. You know, almost everyone has a side hustle nowadays. But for some of them, it's actually their main hustle. 
Like, they might be working as a nurse full-time, 40 hours a week, but their passion and their heart is not nursing. I mean, they're good at their job. They're great nurses. They excel at their job. But their passion for life is that side hustle. And that is just their main thing, okay? So for us, is the gospel a side hustle? Is it something that we just do a few hours a week, make sure we come to church, make sure we check off the list? Or is it our main hustle? And I think for us, gospel has to be the main thing. It has to be the main passion in our life. It can't be a side hustle for us. Does our work or a hobby define us? You know, when we die, do we want to be known as like a great engineer who programmed Python really well? You know, do, do I want my gravestone to really say, oh, Singh was really good at CPR. <laughs> yeah, he was really good at CrossFit. I don't think that's the legacy we want to leave. We want the legacy that Paul had, that the gospel was his calling. You know, we are a purposeless generation that hungers for a calling. And we know that because just think about all the books and movies that are out there for the past 20 years. It's always some kid or young man or young woman who are living a below-average life. Think about Harry Potter, Spider-Man. Their life is kind of miserable, and there's no purpose in their life. And one day they find this hidden power and the hidden calling that comes with it and the hidden talent, and they realize there's this purpose and meaning and fulfillment of their life. And it's a complete fantasy. And that's the narrative of every Marvel superhero. That's the narrative of every other movie and books that are out there. Why? Is this fantasy so appealing to our generation? Because we don't have purpose. We're a purposeless generation. We feel like nothing is giving us purpose. And you know what? If you're a young person here today and you feel purposeless, I understand what that's like. I grew up as a poor immigrant kid who felt like my life is not going anywhere. But I promise you, you're not going to find a purpose just in careers, in your hobby, or in anything else you do. Gospel is our purpose. And if you're a believer here today, I promise you that pursuing the gospel is a greater calling and is a greater mission and purpose than anything else you will ever do. And it's, it's in the gospel that we find who we were meant to be. You know, in my line of work, I see a lot of people die. And often I read the charts and it typically goes like this. They usually have some kind of chronic illness that they were struggling with, but they were working full time and they were fine. But then they retired. And then a few years later, now they're in the ICU, and they're sitting in front of me. And that's something I read in the charts very often, because, you know, you quit your job, you start playing golf, you're taking it easy, you're just not as active, you lose that drive, you're not as, you don't have the drive that you used to. And some of that chronic illnesses just come back, and you end up getting sicker and sicker. But, you know, that's not what I see here at Hillview Bible Chapel. I'm not going to mention names because I'm going to, that's going to embarrass them, but you know who they are, and you have these retired people who are more active than when they were working. And there's this particular gentleman who is still working for the Lord and printing out more tracts than ever. <laughs> and I've taken care of a lot of kidney failure patients. They don't usually have that kind of energy, and I don't know what they're putting in his dialysis, but it must be really good because <laughs> he's running circles around me and I'm like, you're not supposed to have that much energy at that age with dialysis, but okay. Uh, so you have these people who are, haven't retired, and you have another deacon here who's retired from his job, and, and this guy is still active, is everywhere serving the saints. One day he's in Texas helping someone move. Next thing you know, he's in Sacramento because someone's car broke down and helping that saint. Next thing you know, he's in Romania doing a mission trip. I'm like, aren't you retired? 
Jesus has never retired. They never retired working for the Lord. They're still working for the same boss. The gospel was their main hustle, and it's still their main hustle, and they never retired. Paul continues on to say here that word of God is not in prison. The word of God is not in prison. It's going to spread. You can't stop the word of God. Paul was more, he cared more about the gospel than his own well-being. He didn't care if he was suffering hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, because the word of God cannot be stopped. And that was his concern. It says, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with the eternal glory. You know, Paul was willing to suffer for others' sake. He was willing to say, I'm going to suffer so other people may be saved. You know, do we have a heart for the lost to the point that we're willing to suffer? You know, I honestly have a hard time giving up my vacations to go on mission trips or to commit to certain ministry. Because I know if someone asks me, can you do this ministry? I'm like, I was hoping to go to New Zealand. You know, and that's, that's kind of hard. And I'm just being honest, right? Well, that's kind of like someone who's having a hard time giving up donuts when he has to go on a keto diet. Okay. If we're having a hard time giving up pleasures of this life, how are we supposed to start suffering for the sake of the gospel? That's a bigger ask. I'm not sure if I'm ready to suffer. I'm not sure if I know what suffering really means. Is the American church ready for suffering? Is it ready for persecution? Or are we too busy eating donuts? You know, what do we live for? If we're not living for the gospel, if gospel is not our calling, if it is not our main hustle, when persecution comes, you know, we're going to break. We're not going to be able to endure the suffering that's coming. Lastly, Paul was able to say, the, my gospel, because the gospel was his hardship. He embraced the hardship and the persecution of the gospel as his own. He was imprisoned as a criminal, and yet he suffered. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. So the gospel that he preached was Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and descendant of David. Why was that important? Why did he pick those two things? Well, if you, if you preach a risen Savior, that he was a risen Lord, that he is God. Well, the Pharisees had a problem with that. That's why they wanted to kill Paul. If you're preaching that he's a descendant of David, the chosen Messiah, the Pharisees also had a problem with that. So Paul was preaching Jesus Christ, risen and chosen. And that's what got him executed. And Paul could have compromised he could have softened the gospel. He could have preached what they wanted to hear. He didn't have to die. But he was willing to pay the ultimate price so that he can preach the pure gospel, not the false gospel. You know, I feel like in the American church today, we often act as if Jesus needs a PR person, like he needs a public relation makeover. But, you know, we can't sugarcoat the gospel. The gospel is a dangerous thing. It was a dangerous thing 2,000 years ago when Paul was executed, and it's a dangerous thing now. We need to be unashamed of the gospel, and we need to preach Jesus Christ, risen and chosen. There's a book called Live Not by Lies by Roger Ayer, and it's a book based off of an uh, essay written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's an anti-communist dissident 
a Nobel laureate and an Orthodox Christian who was exiled from Soviet Russia who wrote Gulag Archipelago. Solzhenitsyn's main message was that the reason why communism thrived in Russia wasn't just a political issue. It wasn't just a cultural issue. He was saying it was a spiritual issue. The reason why communism came in was because people were not spiritually solid. And he was encouraging the Russian people that in order to resist the totalitarian government of Russia, you need a spiritual backbone. And that's the message the book challenges us today, that just as they were encouraging the Russians to stand firm in the, for the truth, that we in America need to stand firm for the truth, for the coming totalitarianism. And the whole title, Live Not By Lies, is defined by this. What did it mean to live by lies? It meant, Solzhenitsyn writes, accepting without protest all the falsehoods and propaganda that the state compelled its citizens to affirm, or at least not to oppose, to get along peaceably under totalitarianism. Everybody says that they have no choice but to conform, says Solzhenitsyn, and to accept powerlessness. But that's the lie that gives all the other lies their malign force. The ordinary man may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he's not going to be his loyal subjects. And the book encourages us to stand firm for the truth and live not by lies in our culture. And the book goes on further to talk about how, unlike Soviet Russia, we're at the risk of soft totalitarianism here in America. In Soviet Russia, it was totalitarianism where they forced people and controlled people by violence, imprisonment, and their gulag system. But what's coming in America is soft totalitarianism. It's looking a lot more like a social credit system with a te technological surveillance to control people. And I think that's likely that that's the, how the persecution in America will come. And soft persecution, I think, is more deceptive. I think it draws you in and appeals to your comforts, your pleasure, and your security. There is an MMA fighter in China named Xi Shidong, and he's a kind of controversial figure. Uh, he is an MMA fighter who challenges uh, kung fu masters, like people who are masters of tai chi for generations after generation. He would challenge them to a fight, and he would end up beating them in like less than two minutes. And he would call them a fraud and say, look, your kung fu is a fraud. It's not a true martial art, and I challenge any of you guys to a duel. So his videos started going viral on YouTube, and he became famous. And the Chinese government was not happy with that because it was, uh, it was disrespecting their culture and their heritage, and it was not good for the national pride. So how did the Chinese government choose to persecute this MMA fighter? It wasn't by putting him in prison. It wasn't by making him disappear. It was through a social credit system. They lowered his social credit system, his social credit score, so that he was not able to travel. He couldn't ride a train. He couldn't ride public transportation. He couldn't check into high-speed, uh, uh, high-luxury hotels. He couldn't even take out a credit card. He couldn't rent. He couldn't buy property. He couldn't send his kids to private school. And one time, his trip to another fight should have been an hour or two, two hours of travel time. It took him 36 hours to get there because he was getting rejected at every place he could go to. And he ended up paying $60,000 in U.S. dollars in fines. I had to apologize on a Chinese social media website for a week. At least his statement was up there for a week, and he had to pay for it. 
If that's how a totalitarian government is controlling their people, because it's more effective and it's easier, how will people control Christians in America? I think it's looking more like this kind of soft totalitarianism. And think about even the vaccines. And if you think about the vaccine compliance in America, the way America, the government has enforced compliance in this country has been in a very different way. Okay? And I'm not talking about whether or not you should get the vaccine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way the government enforced compliance. I know so many of my coworkers and students in universities who did not want to take the vaccine, but they felt forced to do so, not because they thought it was medically the right thing to do, but because they had no choice. <laughs> they made it practically impossible to attend college if you had to get tested every three days with all the rules if you're not vaccinated. And work was almost the same thing. At one point, some of my coworkers said they were going to get fired. Okay? And that was the threat. Now, eventually, they got an exception, and now they have to wear N95 mask 24-7 whenever they're at work. But they made it really difficult. And then they said you can't go to restaurants. And then they said you can't travel. So they were taking your comforts away, right? And I admit, I got the booster so I can travel. So I was, I was pretty weak. I was like, okay, well, I, I really want to travel, so I'm gonna, I just do it. But we think so much about, oh, they're going to imprison us, or they're going to threaten your physical life. But often it's by just taking your job away, taking your comforts away, threatening your education and your future. And I think these things are a precursor to persecution. These are a precursor of how the government can persecute Christians. Because what happens when the pronoun police comes after you? And I know it sounds funny, but I don't mean that as a joke, right? When I teach at San Jose State as a nursing instructor, um, I remember all the faculty had pronouns on their email addresses. But it really wasn't at my work at the hospital. But in the recent past year or two, I'm starting to see more and more of my managers and people having pronouns in their email addresses. And just recently, in the past few weeks, I've seen some doctors wear pronouns on their badge. And I hear that if you go to Starbucks, that every employee has a pronoun on their badge. And if you're a Christian, and you're pressured to do so. So how long will it be before they ask you at work that if you don't have your pronouns on your email addresses, on your badge, that you're going to be fired? How long will that take? You know, there's rainbow flags everywhere at my work. Uh, most of my coworkers, I would say plus 90%, have a, ra a rainbow on their badge to represent their support for LGBT. And, you know, we usually have rainbow flags everywhere. And the whole LGBT... You know, Q, I, A, I think the A part there is for ally. And I remember going through the, you know, every year you have to do sexual harassment videos and you have to watch the LGBT stuff. And they started using this word ally. And they caught me off guard. I, I don't remember seeing that before. And they keep saying ally. I'm like, well, I don't think I'm an ally. And I'm a little dense, I'm a little slow, but it took me a while to figure out. So if I'm not an ally, who am I? I'm an enemy. First, you identify your allies, and then you start identifying your enemies. Are you ready to be called enemies? Are you ready to be called bigots? Because that's in the near future. You know, I think having a pronoun on my email address, personally, would be against my conviction. It would be living under a lie. I would be acknowledging and playing charade to the lie 
into their ideology and agenda that is damaging and hurting people. And I think we need to stand firm and not live under a lie and say that is not the way we should. We need to live by truth. But I could imagine Christians saying, well, it's my pronoun anyway. It, these are actually my pronoun. And if I put this on my email address, I'm not acknowledging it. I'm just doing what my pronouns are. Sure, maybe you can talk yourself into it. Maybe you can convince yourself that you're not living under a lie. Do you think they're going to stop there? They want your allegiance. You know, when I was in Korea, they made me pledge allegiance to a Korean flag. When I came to America, they made me pledge allegiance to an American flag. Okay? They have rainbow flags everywhere. What do you think flags are for? They want you to pledge your allegiance. And they're not going to stop till you bend the knee. Flags are used to identify your allies and then to identify your enemies. If you're the only person not having a rainbow flag on your badge at work, you stand out. And every year when they offer you a t-shirt and you say no, you stand out. And eventually, if they make you wear a pronoun and you're the only one without a pronoun, you're going to stand out. Are we ready to face those consequences? You know, think about the elite institutions of our government, our country. Think about the public schools. It's been taken over by gender theory. The media, corporations, big tech, uh, universities, obviously. CIA, I mean, have you watched the CIA recruiting video? It's scary that every aspect of our government has been taken over by this gender theory, and they demand your allegiance. So as things get worse, what are we going to tell our children? What am I going to tell my kids if for the price of getting an education is going to be signing up for a pronoun? Am I going to tell my kids to keep your head down, stay low, just sign the paper? Just compromise? Just live by lies so you can get a job and get a good education. Is that what I'm going to tell my kids? How do we prepare for this? How do we prepare for the persecution that's coming? And how do we prepare? And I think one of the things we can do is by having a strong family. In the coming soft totalitarianism, Christians will have to regard family life in a much more focused, serious way. The traditional Christian family is not merely a good idea. It is also a survival strategy for the faith in a time of persecution. Christians should stop taking family life for granted, instead approaching it in a more thoughtful, disciplined way. We cannot simply live as all other families live, except that we go to church on Sunday. Holding the correct theological beliefs and having the right intentions will not be enough. Christian parents must intentionally be countercultural in their approach to family dynamics. The days of living like everybody else and hoping our children turn out for the best are over. You know, family and marriage is an institution that God created and is the basis of all other institutions. Society and even churches fall apart without families and without marriages. So we need strong biblical marriages. We need strong biblical families. And we need to raise our kids to be countercultural and to know what time it is and to be wise as serpents. The institutions are falling apart in all over the Western world. It's not just in America. You, know, you look at Asia, even in Asia, a lot of the Western countries, marriage is in, in decline, divorces on the rise, children and birth rates on decline, and pet ownership is on the incline. Yeah. <laughs> and 
I, it shocks me to this day. I just had a conversation this past week of a group of coworkers, young and old, who were saying, you know, I don't need relationship. I have my dog at home, and I'm just happy. And everyone agreed with that statement, and I was kind of shocked. People are rejecting marriage. People are rejecting family and children. People no longer value kids, but my coworkers love their dogs. And I think they would save their dog over a human life. I mean, there's a survey, and, and like, I think something like 40% or 60% of Americans said yes to that. But I know, I know coworkers who would do that, right? They, they do not value human life. They value their own life, their autonomy, and they value their happiness over everything else. So do we value marriage? Do we value family? Do we raise children to be countercultural? And this is why I think we need to support and pray for programs like the Great Heart Academy. I know Nathan started the Great Heart Academy this past year, and he risked his career to do so. And this kind of program where you are helping children to be countercultural, helping families prepare for the world that's out there, I think we need more programs like that, and we need more institutions like that that's going to be our own. Because everything else out there is now corrupted, and everything out there is living by lies. And second, we have to learn to live not by lies. Once you perceive how the system runs on lies, stand as firmly as you can on what you know to be true and real. When confronted by those lies, refuse to let the media and institutions propagandize your children. Teach them how to identify lies and to refuse them. Do your best not to be party to the lie, not for the sake of professional advantage, personal status, or any other reason. Sometimes you will have to act openly to confront the lie directly. Other times you will fight it by remaining silent and withholding the approval authorities' request. We need to stand firm and not live by lies. We have to have a conviction, and we have to draw the line and say, I would not compromise my conviction and my truth, and I will stand for the gospel. Third, we have to accept suffering. We have to accept suffering as the inevitable part of the Christian life moving forward. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible is pretty clear. It promises suffering for those who are Christians. If you're you're going to live according to biblical principles and you're going to be faithful to the scripture, you're going to be persecuted. And I like this quote from the book. It says, But truth cannot be separated from tears. To live in truth requires accepting suffering. You know, in in so many ways, we want Christianity without suffering. We want Christianity without tears. But it's part of the process. The statement is trustworthy. For if we died with them, we will also live with them. If we endure, we will also reign with them. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, this was likely a popular poem or a hymn, hymn in the early church at the time. And you can imagine the persecution that was around if this was what they were singing on Sunday mornings. And this passage is pretty clear. If we deny Christ, he's going to deny us. Will, will we be faithful to the end? Will we remain faithful to the truth and not deny Christ? You know, I often think of persecution as someone pointing a gun in my head and asking me to deny Christ. And I don't want to make light of that. That happens in other countries, and that is a big deal. But I don't think that's a persecution that's coming to America. 
I don't think that's persecution that's coming to California. I don't think it's going to be that obvious. I think it's going to be much more deceptive. Did God really say you can't touch the fruit of knowledge of good and evil? Is this really denying Christ? You don't have to deny a religion. You just have to sign this paper. These are really your pronouns anyway. Do you, I mean, don't you have kids? Don't you have mouths to feed? I mean, aren't Christians supposed to be full of love? Don't you want to love these people? Why are you so full of hatred and bigotry? You know, I think about Shadrach, Michigan, and Bendigo, and everything, every time I think about that story, I think about where's everyone else? <laughs> There's a whole community that was exiled to Babylon, and only three people are standing up against the king's edict. Where's everyone else? And you think about Nazi Germany. It seems so obvious to us in hindsight with the history behind us. Where's all the other Christians in the Nazi Germany? Where were they? Why didn't they object to the government? Why didn't they fight against the Nazi government? Wasn't that obvious? It wasn't obvious. It was deceptive. Hitler was very deceptive in his ways, and it was very difficult. And in the, the kingdom of lies that we are facing is also deceptive, and it is also difficult. There's a movie called The Hidden Life, and I highly recommend it. It's based on a true story of Franz Jagerstatter. He was an Austrian peasant farmer who was born and raised in a small alpine village in Austria. And he refused to take the oath. He didn't, he didn't want to sign the oath to Hitler during World War II. He recognized the evil that the Nazi regime was. And he sacrificed everything, including his life. His wife and children were widowed and orphaned as a result of this, and he was executed. And the movie does a great job playing out this moral dilemma and the internal struggle that Franz had. Because it's such a great job of like, do I keep objecting when my family is ostracized? Do I keep objecting when my priests are telling me to submit to the government? Does this even matter? Does my objection even matter when I'm going to die and no one's going to find out about it? Does it even matter when Germany's winning? I'm not going to make any difference in this war if I die. My family will suffer. And there's this point in the movie where after probably a year of imprisonment, he's weak, he's tired, and they offer him, they say, you don't even have to fight for us. You can be a medic. And here's the paper. You just have to sign this paper, and we're going to let you go home to your family. And right there and then, I saw myself breaking. And I saw myself giving in right at that moment and thought, that's where I'll give in. That's when I'll break. How do we prepare ourselves for the persecution that's to come? How can we be Christians that's not going to deny his name? I think how we live our lives for the Lord now is going to determine how we respond when persecution comes. Are we able to say, this is my gospel? Am I able to say, this is the gospel is my identity? It is my calling. It is my hardship. Or will we choose Christianity without tears? Let's pray. Lord, we are facing difficult times, and we want to endure in difficult times. Lord, we don't want to give in to the lies. Lord, I do not want to live by lies. Lord, I want to live by faith in you, and I want to live out the gospel. Lord, you have called us to be salt and light. And Lord, it's going to be ever so increasingly deceptive and difficult to be a faithful Christian during this time. Lord, we ask that you give us the wisdom to prepare wisdom to have the conviction and have the strength to stand by the truth and not to compromise our values, Lord. 
but help us to pledge our allegiance to you and you alone and to no one else. Christ, I pray. Amen.